Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to episode 130 of Wait What? A Comics and Pop Culture Peaceling. Graham McMillan has returned from San Diego Comic-Con and joins me to discuss the latest events there, as well as comic books we've known and loved, and the ones we just merely read. Covered in our episode today, My Dirty Dumb Eyes by Lisa Hanawalt, the second issue of Lazarus by Greg Rucka and Michael Lark, Judge Dredd, Year One, Issue Four, Hawkeye Annual Number One, The Indestructible Hulk, Agent of Time, Optic Nerve Number Thirteen by Adrian Tomine, Satellite Sam by Matt Fraction and Howard Chaikin, and the Dark Finale to Batman Incorporated, Issue Thirteen by Grant Morrison, Chris Burnham. Super brief show notes for this episode are available over at savagecritic.com, and we always welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. As always, we thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Ah, Graham McMillan, what a relief! My goodness! Jeff Lester, it is a relief. Hi, Jeff. Hi, listeners. It feels like we've not done this forever, and it's only been two weeks. It, it feels o- like forever. It really does. Well, that you know, that two weeks ago was such a short little time, I guess. You know, so, but still, we did it. But yeah, no, I totally feel completely like, how do we do this podcasting thing? Who is this person what, I'm what talking to? What is this podcast? We, we speak of <laughs> How do you... Ca- Cast a pod? Do we just throw it? It's gonna be a pee pod? How, how do we? How does this happen? What, what does it actually mean? Exactly, exactly. That's how in touch it. It's like, well, we're pee slinging again. Um, welcome back, guys. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> the way we want pee sling. I think we. Yes, I think we now have the new name for for this. Uh, Peaceling of ours. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It's back and better than ever. P- more peacelingier than than ever before. So it's so good to talk to you. But I do not know where to start. Should we start with like San Diego, and we can hear a little bit more about how your San Diego experience wrapped up and and all the sure, sure. Why not? Um, how did my San Diego experience wrap up busily? Mm-hmm. I actually had a really good couple of last days, which were incredibly busy, but not busy in the old uh, working way of San Diego for me. Mm-hmm. So I think I said before I went, the San Diego for me used to mean that at some point I would work all the way through the night. Yes. And I would not sleep, and I would just be completely overwhelmed by deadlines. And that didn't happen this time. Wow. I escaped that for the first time ever of me working San Diego. That did not happen, which was spectacular. Um, <laughs> but I managed to be busy no matter what, if that makes sense. Like, yes. I, I don't, it's like, oh, I wish I had something to do. There was always something to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I met lots of people um, that I'd never met before who I utterly adored and wanted to kidnap back to Portland. <laughs> uh, some of whom I, I just outright told that I wanted to kidnap them back to Portland. Um Let's see who who can I who should I call out? Uh, I met Henry from the Beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Barges, I think his name is, mm-hmm. um, who was very very nice. Uh, mm-hmm. I also spent the two hours of the Marvel two hours of waiting for a Marvel press conference with uh, Heidi McDonald from the Beat and Albert Ching, formerly of Newsarama, which oh, yeah. was. I particularly, if you have to spend two hours waiting for a Marvel Studios press conference, let it be in the company of those two who were very uh, entertaining and very good company. However, you're still waiting in a small room 
for two hours for a fucking press conference to start, which is insane. Yeah, I remember following you guys on Twitter. Uh, you and actually Meredith uh, were tweeting at the same time, yes, stuck yes. in that room. And Mer- it... Meredith is on the other side of the room, and every now and again, she'd basically she'd literally like run up. I'd just be like, God, and then run away again. <laughs> <laughs> which was the only time I saw her in the entire show, which I thought was hilarious. Of course, of course. And yeah, there was just that moment where it's like you guys were tweeting, and then you just stopped. And then I was like, okay, clearly everyone in that room has gone mad and eaten one another. Because there wasn't any real follow up tweets from What anyone. was really funny was, um, oh, part of the reason was, uh, so it started like pretty much just no announcement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'd continually say, so from about, so to explain to everyone who's listening who doesn't know the backstory of this. Um, Marvel Studios sent out uh, an invitation to a press conference before the Comic Con and said, the plan is we're going to do a press conference at 6.45 on Saturday evening. People are going to go directly from the panel to the press conference. Right. And the idea was they were cycling people through the panel and as they left the panel they were going to come to the press conference. But the two were essentially happening at the same time. Right? right. Mm-hmm. And they said, so we need you to sign in at 6 o'clock and the press conference will start at 6.45 and the press conference will be done by 8.15. Mm-hmm. So they're promising you an hour and a half of press conference. Right. Right? Uh, and, you know, studios, they're pretty much the biggest game in town at Comic-Con. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, I'm going to say yes. So at 6 o'clock, I go to sign in, uh, and it's not in the the, the convention center. It's at, at the Bayfront Hotel mm-hmm. next door. And it takes up an entire floor of the Bayfront Hotel because there's a lot of people, a lot of press who want to be there, right? Right. So we all show up at 6 o'clock, and there's no one there to sign in with. <laughs> there's just no one there. We're all literally waiting outside a room. Mm-hmm. Going, it is here, right? It, like, it's it's supposed to be here? Wait, it is here. And going to ask the security guards, and the security guards, no, like, you're definitely here. This is definitely where it is. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely here. It's definitely happening here. Uh, at about 6.30, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, someone appeared and was like, if you could just get in two lines, and that was like herding cats. Uh, so by about 7 o'clock we were in the room mm-hmm. and they're like okay so it's going to there, there's a slight delay but it's going to start in 5 minutes mm-hmm. and we were like oh sure okay fine and then it's just disappeared for like half an hour meanwhile everyone is reading Twitter because the actual announcement from the panel are coming over Twitter because we don't yes. know anything right. in the room right? Mm-hmm. so we're reading Twitter and we're like oh they've said the name of the Avengers movie Caster here. Oh, you know, the Captain America cast is here. I guess that's who we're talking to. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, at this point, you know, I'm literally, Heidi and I are reading different people on Twitter and reporting to each other. Right. On what's happening. Mm-hmm. And every now and again, a guy coming in and be like, I know we're late. It's another five minutes. Mm-hmm. I know we're late. It's another five minutes. And there comes a point, probably about half past seven, at which point we're 45 minutes late starting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've all been there for an hour and a half. Um, where you can actually feel the room has shifted away, like the goodwill has gone. Yes. You know, there there is people are actually upset to be there. Yeah. And are and are not happy with the organization and are not happy with with the lack of information. And also the realization is, I think at this point, it struck people that we're also not seeing any of the footage. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like we so basically. Marvel has successfully 
got the majority of press away from the panel so they can't see any of the footage. Yeah, and and I have to say, me being Mr. Joe Conspiracy, that's why I'm really fascinated to hear what ended up happening to you guys later because it seems like just this amazing way for Marvel, for the most part, to be ahead of the spin. You know what I mean? Like, Well, yes and no. So, so, um, so they would be ahead of the spin if people weren't on Twitter, mm-hmm. and they would be ahead of the spin if it was in fact that there was press in that room. Mm-hmm. There were people who in the Holly H just didn't leave, who thought, "I want to report on the panel, not in the press conference." Right. So, for example, Wired had two people in that room anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're like, "Oh, I can tell you what the Guardians of the Galaxy footage is. Oh, I can tell you, you know, the right. whole thing." Um, and obviously, Twitter people are going absolutely fucking nuts on Twitter about it. Right. Um. What they did was they very successfully kept away any negative spin. Exactly. By by really minimizing the people who would have complained. Yeah. What's interesting is everyone I know who saw it mm-hmm. did not complain. As right. opposed to like the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. pilot. Mm-hmm. I know people saw that and who were like, huh, it was kind of all right. Mm-hmm. It was kind of slow. It didn't really introduce anyone. Like to, to hear, because I talked to a lot of people about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that weekend. Mm-hmm. What I basically gathered was, if you loved the Avengers, you'll like the show. <laughs> if you're indifferent about the Avengers, or you're indifferent about Whedon, mm-hmm. there's not really a lot to convince you. Right. Which strikes me as a potential problem mm-hmm. for the show in the long run. Uh, it's also interesting was talking to a number of people at the show who, uh, the same as me, expect Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to not make it to a second season. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's genuinely an expectation out there of this is either going to be a monster hit or it's going to die. Mm. They're like, there's no middle ground, hmm. uh, which was really interesting because I thought I was that was me being conspiracy theory thinking that, and a lot of people agreed with me. Oh, interesting. Um, now, why? Just out of curiosity, do, does it seem super big budget? Because I mean, part of me is like, uh, it's it's not even that it seems super big budget. It's that ABC's cancellation level mm-hmm. in terms of ratings uh, is above what shows like, I mean it's it's like twice what shows like Smallville got mm-hmm. in terms of weekly ratings uh, and it's above what shows like Heroes got for the last two years of their lives Right. so ABC is basically banking, and also it's significantly above what any Joss Whedon show has ever gotten mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on a regular basis so it, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. basically, its greatest hope is that Avengers and the the Marvel movies has significantly increased that audience on for mainstream television because right now the audience that's there for weekly science uh, superhero television mm-hmm. it's smaller than is likely to survive in ABC for more than a year. Well, but aren't you guys sort of leaving out the fact that ABC is owned by Disney and Disney owns Marvel? I mean, isn't it isn't it a point where, unlike something like Heroes and NBC, where NBC has really no investment or ownership of those characters, isn't it more like ABC? Like, how high well, do you NBC, unless the NBC, budget's super high? You're well, basically NBC owns Heroes. Mm-hmm. I mean, like NBC had Heroes. Oh, okay. 
Okay. It, it's they're both NBC Universal, so it's not like it was licensing it from. Oh, okay, so it really did. Okay, well then, then it's a very analogous um, situation. I mean, okay. what what, it, what the other thing is, I mean, what you're kind of talking about but not really saying mm-hmm. is how valuable is it as a loss leader to keep the Marvel brand around? Yes, exactly. Which which is 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 the X factor. Mm-hmm. Like if it has okay ratings. Mm-hmm. Is it possible ABC and Disney and Marvel are going to say let's keep it on the air because it's raising no, it, it's raising awareness for Captain America. It's raising awareness for Avengers two. Right. They, they might do. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's unlikely. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is, if everything were equal, mm-hmm. I don't think it would make a second season. Yes. Uh, and I, I, I conspiracy theory going around the con that was related to that was it's not meant to. Which I, I found fascinating. Someone had the theory, and I heard a few people repeating it, that it's actually going to lead into the Captain America film. Mm. Hmm. It's a it's a one year deal. Interesting. Which seems crazy to me, but mm-hmm. also not so crazy to be impossible. Right. Right. Certainly. Um... You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll see. But. Um, so, anyways, back to the Marvel press conference. So we're at we're at the press conference around seven thirty. You can feel the room shift away from being there. Right. Um, it's. I mean, it's a few things. At some point, half of the the audience, half of the press people, start uh, stamping their feet and singing "We Will Rock You," which is kind of weird. <laughs> um, but also, like the the press, the the guy who comes out and says five minutes, like starts getting visibly worried. Mm-hmm. Um, and starts like apologizing more, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like going beyond that, I'm sorry. So like, I'm really, really sorry. Right. And at one point, he even identifies himself as a Disney person, and not Marvel person, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Interesting. Um. Anyway, so what happens is at eight o'clock, with no warning, mm-hmm. the cast of Captain America would just walk in the room. <laughs> It's what it's like because people have been going up and down to like check the microphones and everything. So you're kind of paying attention, but not really paying attention. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, "Wait, that's Chris Evans!" Right. <laughs> I thought, "Oh yeah, that's Samuel L. Jackson and Scarlett Johansson." I guess the press conference has started. Wow. Um, but all told, the entire press conference, Jeff, and this is the cast of Captain America and the cast of Guardians of the Galaxy, lasts less than half an hour after two hours of waiting. Holy shit. So, like, they had Captain America move through there in and out in, like, 15 minutes, followed by 15 yeah. minutes of Guardians? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't so, know. It, I, I'm a big it, it fan of the controlling the spin at that point, because oh, that's they did, crazy. Uh, okay, so here's what I was going to say. So, the, we left the, the press conference after this, and the press conference is fine. The Captain America part was actually kind of dull. Mm-hmm. Um, if only because they're ve- like they've done it before, so they were kind of jaded, whereas Guardians of the Galaxy people... Some of them have been to Comic Con before, obviously. You've got Karen Gillan, who's done Doctor Who, mm-hmm. but they seemed like weirdly. Also, they'd just come off a transatlantic flight to go to fucking Comic Con, and then they were getting back in the flight that night. Right. Like they flew there literally for Comic Con, and then they went back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they seemed punchy, and they seemed weird, and it was much more interesting. Right. Yeah. I would um, think so. You know, because you're kind of like, because you're, for for example, Benicio del Toro. <laughs> Did not want to be there. Did not, like, could not have hidden his anymore. Also, he might have been on incredibly strong sleep medication. Really? Yeah. He was He was one of the two people I saw during the convention that I was like, wow, you are visibly not with it. Wow. Visibly not with it. 
Um, but he was fascinating. Uh, Chris Pratt was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Just genuinely spectacular. At one point, went into a joke about how his diet in order to get himself into shape left him suicidal and he wanted slid his wrists with carrots that he'd been given for his birthday instead of cake and while that was funny what was better was afterwards he's like no but seriously don't make jokes about suicide just don't just no and, I want, and James Gunn the director started saying something and he broke it and he was just like no James don't just don't make jokes about suicide just just don't do it. completely deadpan breaking into other people to tell them not to make jokes about suicide which they weren't about to do <laughs> um yeah. thing was really fun um, but we, we leave the press conference after you know we've been in this room for you know an hour and a half at this point we've been in this experience for two and a half hours yes um, and everywhere's buzzing about the Marvel panel mm-hmm. everywhere mm-hmm. everywhere's just like oh god like that was amazing that was the highlight show blah 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 the next day I go down and I see uh, Ryan Pentagos is your name mm-hmm and I'm just like, hey, how are you doing? And he's waiting for, God, Tom Hiddleston, maybe. Like, he's about to do, do an interview at the Marvel panel. Right. And so he's surrounded by fans. Mm-hmm. And I say something to the effect of, you know, you guys might have had the best panel of the con from what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And this complete stranger interrupts us. And they're like, no, they definitely did. Marvel fucking kicked ass. <laughs> like, so emphatically, so emphatically, so much of a believer. <laughs> the part of was like, sure, they were controlling the spin, but like when you see their actual reaction, mm-hmm. they didn't have to control the spin because the spin was all positive. Yeah, well, see, that's it. I mean, that's the weird no thing. No one came away. No mm-hmm. one came away from that panel going, ah, maybe. Like, people came away from the, the uh, Warner's panel being like, Batman, Superman, really? You know, whereas the Marvel panel, everyone who was there came away just being like, holy shit. Yeah. I am blown. Like, I, I am blown away. You had. Tom Hiddleston coming out, you had the Captain America cast coming out, you had the Guardians cast coming out, we saw this footage that no one had ever seen before. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, there was no bad spin from that panel. No, so I, I know. don't know if they were just nervous or or what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was well, who knows? I think maybe they were thinking about like they wanted to not to leave as little open to chance as they did it, you know, as possible. And, but I mean, it clearly, clearly worked. Like, I don't know, like as someone who didn't go and just from a weird combination of following Twitter, following the post comic con coverage just lightly. And then of course people asking me about things, you know, um, uh, it really seemed clear that, 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 that Marvel panel was, was it? Yeah, was it. It was, it, it kind of was that scary, like, wasn't it last year a lot of people were like, I don't know if there was really a clear winner for Comic-Con. Like, this year, m- like, Marvel Marvel took it, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, very, very clearly, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was the weirdest experience. It wasn't the best experience. Um, yeah. Seeing Thrilling Adventure was spectacular. You know I'm a big fan of that show, but seeing it live yes. was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um talking to Simon Pegg and, and Edgar Wright and Nick Frost at, right. at the, the press round table I, I I really did come away from it being I want to be Simon Pegg's friend <laughs> but but in a weird way where it's just like I kind of just want to hear him explain shit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, hearing him talking about his writing process was fascinating to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so clinical isn't the right word but it's so planned and so precise 
Yeah, it's very thoughtful. I mean, which which sounds kind of goofy, but like having read other interviews with him and hearing him speak or whatever, like hearing him speak on the space commentaries, for example, it's like, oh yeah, he really does put like there's a lot of there's a lot of thought that goes into that, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he actually said that the um, the world's end that's coming out next mm-hmm. uh, this month, now it's August. Um, the first thing they decided was the running time of the movie. <laughs> and then they started dividing the running time into how many acts they needed. Wow. Yeah. That's... Which just kind of blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it does. It does for me too. But I, I'm, I'm kind of not necessarily surprised because, you know, as somebody whose first exposure to that trio was seeing Shaun of the Dead in the theater because I had heard some good things, I was just kind of in awe at, you know, it's a perfectly structured little film. It is incredibly, incredibly lean. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, and then they actually they actually spoke about that they, uh, not just in terms of the running times of the films but why they work together so rarely mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it really is a keep them wanting more mm-hmm. they're very aware of the audience's ability to get bored of you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it, not only within a, an individual story mm-hmm. although they did talk about the need to keep things short uh, but in terms of like just doing it too often mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I thought was I mean they were they were they were all very smart. They're all incredibly self-aware. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just—it was fascinating listening to them talk. It, it really was. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that would have been great. I was actually very curious to hear how that went. So it's pretty awesome to hear about. Um, it was very funny. Uh, so of the three, because I mean, it's pressure on tables, which are this weird environment anyway. Right. Of the three, uh, Simon Pegg completely dominated in terms of charm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nick Frost was I don't want to say the complete opposite but he was so much more low-key after you just talked to Simon Pegg <laughs> the part <laughs> was like I could just like bullshit with this guy as opposed to like you didn't have the pre- the idea of like I'm interviewing at this point mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. more just like yeah let's just let's just do a lot of back and forth and so f- for the Nick Frost segment there's a lot more back and forth between everyone who's there wow not just to him but mm-hmm. to each other which was really interesting hmm that's really funny. Yeah, so it, 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 it was, uh, but that, that was definitely a highlight for me. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? The other highlights are personal highlights. Meeting Glenn Weldon, was, or the NPR's uh, Glenn Weldon, was, was great. was mm-hmm. really, really, I, I've been a big fan of his writing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so getting to meet him and, and talk to him for for a while, like we, I, was, I was kind of surprised at how long we managed to carve out of our days, mm-hmm. um, was really good. Uh the I got oh I got uh, given a copy of Lisa Hanawalt's book oh yeah my dirty dumb eyes mm-hmm. have you have you seen this book I I've seen a lot of the pieces in it I haven't seen it cumulatively but I I love her work it's amazing I I I was completely ignorant of Lisa Hanawalt's uh, work prior to this and I was talking to uh, someone at the John and Quarterly table. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, in the, like what's been successful for you the show, mm-hmm. and she was like, "Oh, it, it's it's my dirty demise. That's mm-hmm. that's the book of the show. Mm. Have you seen it?" And I was like, "And she she gives it to me. She's like, you should just take it because it's really re- like you'll understand when you read it.'" Yeah. And sure enough, leafing through, I was like, "That's funny." But sure enough, when you read it, you're like, "This is just 
amazing. Mm-hmm. This woman is remarkably funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her 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 sense of humor is uh, extraordinary. You know. And... Yeah, it, it's 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 such it's such a great book. I mean, I mean, me being me, the movie reviews are my favorite parts. Oh my god! Yeah, I think that uh, I think that's my main exposure to her. Of course, I, probably for a lot of people was that review of Drive, which is just like one of the best movie reviews of all time. I think. Oh, I, I would say it's actually outclassed in this book by the review of uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh yeah, I saw that one as well. Which I, for whatever reason, I don't remember nearly as well. But I remember that also being fantastic. But um, you know, she's also got sex fantasies inspired by movies, <laughs> uh, including any movie by Terrence Malick. I'm standing in a field of being pleasured by lens flare as a husky voiceover narrator whispers to me. <laughs> That's pretty brilliant. Um, it's just, it's just, it's really smart, really funny, uh, really engaged in culture in a way that I feel that a lot of, um, I don't know, comic comedians aren't. Like, I feel that there's a lot of nerd humor, mm-hmm. but there's not always a lot of like wider culture humor. So, for example, she's got like rumors I've heard about Anna Wintour. <laughs> Which is something that just does not play to a nerd crowd at all, right. but it's great. Mm-hmm. Like, really, really funny. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's the joke, and it's one of those things that's great because the joke is not the rumors, but her illustration of the rumors. <laughs> you know, so she keeps a Louis Vuitton trunk, uh, trunk in her office for power naps. It's funny, but it's the illustration of her lying face down with her legs <laughs> hanging out the back of it that is like. That is the punchline. <laughs> uh, that sounds pretty great. You know, her power animal is the ostrich. Again, funny, but then seeing the drawing of her sitting entirely nonchalantly on an ostrich is the punchline that makes it. Staffers know not to disturb her during ostrich time, which is her standing up, sticking her head under a pillow on a, on a sofa. <laughs> like, that's her stuff is great. Um, so yeah, that that was a that was great. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it's how much is it? It is twenty two ninety five from John and Quarterly, and it's called My Dirty Dumb Eyes by Lisa Hannawalt. And yeah, I cannot recommend that highly enough. I read that on the plane back, and it was one of those times where you're laughing, and you in public, and you kind of feel like I should stop this. I'm probably making other people nervous because <laughs> I'm just laughing so much. Right. Other like other people will be like. Is he okay? Is is like is this actually crying? And you know what, exactly. what's going on? Why why is that man maniacally twittering, uh, tittering? What's going on in this plane? Oh, twittering! That's uh, ruined a good joke. So, um, well, Graham, that's very exciting. Please tell me about other books and comic-like materials that you have read recently. Uh, before Comic Con, I mainlined 2008. And when I say mainlines, I mean, I pretty much caught up with, like, a year and a half's worth of 2008. Not that I haven't been reading a weekly, but I, I read them, like, en masse. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, like, I read a year and a half's worth of Dread continuity. Wow. Pretty much in a sitting. And, first of all, Dread is fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Dread is uh, such a strong continued narrative mm-hmm. that it it's that seeing how they both fit within the uh, the I don't want to say restrictive nature of a dread trip, but there's definitely like a dread formula. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But how they fit within the dread formula and also push at the edges of the dread formula at the same time, right? To the point where they reshape the strip and reshape the character 
but so slowly that you're not like, well, what are, you know, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. That this is wonderful. And the fact that, you know, you've, at this point, you've got like four or five writing writers working on it at the same time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. swapping up between ships, and the quality doesn't really dip. No, I don't like, think you might, so. You might you might have a bum episode, but mm-hmm. that's about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just amazing. So mm-hmm. yeah, Mainline 2008 was spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, talking about rebooting, uh, this week's Hulk, this week's Indestructible Hulk issue I read yesterday. Um, it's the first episode of Agent of Time mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. it's following up from Age of Ultra mm-hmm. with the idea that time is broken and only the Hulk can put it back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is fairly unsubtle reboot of the series mm-hmm. uh, it really feels like a, a jumping on point but not just jumping on point like a resetting of the status quo and it's much better than the first episode of the, the first issue of the series mm. it, it just feels far more concise it feels like it's got much more of a direction if you to exist uh, when Indestructible Hulk launched one of the problems I felt was it didn't really tell the premise. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really buy the and now Bruce Banner's working for S.H.I.E.L.D. because thing at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel that the and now he's working for Time because Time is a new acronymed department of S.H.I.E.L.D. by the way. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just like he's working in Time. Like there's a like I, I stands for hang on temporal something. I'm going to have to look up the digital comic now. But they sell that to me much more. They sell the idea that the Hulk is the only guy who can survive this. Hmm. Like, it has to be the Hulk because it has to be the Hulk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's something that, that really worked for me. Um, and uh, also, it is the most amazing art. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew Scalera is drawing it, and mm-hmm. it is like, what if Sean Murphy really went after his early Chris Bacalo influence? Wow. But was just a little bit more sketchy and cartoony at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is to say, looks amazing. Um, yeah, it, it was a very, very strong issue. I, I kind of wish it was an issue one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that... I, I know that a lot of people, like me, like sampled the early issues and were like, eh, this isn't really coming together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, I came back on when Simon's, the Simonson arc started. And again, I was like, eh, this isn't really together. Right. <laughs> like, this is this is fun enough, but it's it feels really throwaway. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then I came back on for the Daredevil thing. I was like, almost, <laughs> but not quite. Well, I really like Wade. Is mm-hmm. the thing. Right. I really like Wade, and it's frustrating for me to see him continually like almost hit the target and not. Right. So I I gave it like lots of chances. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this, this Agents of Time is like issue eleven, mm-hmm. and I have I have read at this point issues one and two. Mm-hmm. Then issue six, which was the first Simonson, and then issue nine, which was the the, dare, the start of the Daredevil arc. Uh huh. So you know, this is what my fifth issue of the book in eleven issues. Right. Every single time before, I've been like, oh, it's not there yet. Right. Um. So you know, I I tried hard. Uh, t- okay, time stands for temporal irregularity management and radiation. I- I'm sorry, management and what? Eradication. And eradication. Uh, I see. Interesting. I, you know, it's funny. I, um, uh, you know, I, I got it. People, whatnots were did, kind did, enough. Did you to, read it? No, I, I've, I haven't seen anything since the first. I think I saw, I read the first three issues of Indestructible Hulk in a row, <clears throat> and I was kind of like, 
I, I was not especially... Well, to be honest, I'm not... A, it's rare that I'm especially bothered when I stop getting any Marvel issues, you know, like, because I'm really... It's really very much the beggar bowl situation, but I was kind of like, eh, you know, I really kind of... I was, I was... I'm not going to miss that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm, I'm always fascinated to the degree to which um, Wade, despite being, you know, I think priding himself quite rightly on being, you know, sort of a craftsman's craftsman, I suppose, uh, and, and capable of tackling anything, clearly has stuff that works better for him than not. And I remember liking a lot of the stuff, lot, uh, the idea behind the Hulk, and being impressed at how much of the execution I thought was kind of blown on sort of a weird craft level, you know? Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're, I think that's totally right. I think there was a lot of potential there, but it was never quite realized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know that some people were very quick to sort of pin that on the art, which I, I can sort of kind of see, but there was also just kind of that weird feeling of like, eh, it's, it's not, you know, um, it's before, before you went to Comic-Con, uh, I had picked up the uh, the first um, Irredeemable Digital Omnibus, which I think was the first 19 issues of Irredeemable. Mm-hmm. And I, I had read, I think, up to issue 8, although rereading the issues, I was like, either not a lot of it stuck, or I had read it incredibly haphazardly. But uh, it was really interesting reading that 19 issues in a go because there were elements like you and I had talked about it I think actually in the previous podcast uh, or, or the the podcast prior to that where you, you pointed out that you felt that Irredeemable worked best the farther it got from its um, the farther away it got from the analog situation of it just being evil Superman I suppose um, yeah. and I'm I'm not entirely sure if I agree. One of the things that really impressed me about Irredeemable was, and it, and I don't know to what extent this is just, it, it, it struck me as kind of a weird superhero equivalent of The Walking Dead, you know, in terms of, uh, yes, you were going to gasp at that. Was that an interjection I, I, I heard? <laughs> <laughs> that that was not, but I will interject. I think you're right, Jeff. It was actually a drinking of the tea, but <laughs> I will interject. Jeff, I think you're totally right. Uh, I will say, however, that as the series goes towards its conclusion, I think it gets much stronger, because I think you're only about halfway through. Yeah, yeah. I think up up to issue 19, they've he's done a pretty good job getting to something like uh, an Act 2 reversal, where... It's like you've got aliens who have come back. Um, you know, the the aliens have come back. Uh, the plutonium himself has seems like he's been conquered or beaten. You know, it's right around the time where it looks like he's very much under the thumb of Modeus. Um, and like I said, one of the things I appreciated reading it is it was a very fast, smooth read. It was great for reading one after the other, you know, and in that sense, it reminded me of Walking Dead in that there was a very quick, like, it was it was always hustling. It got to the end. The end always was going to be a cliffhanger to, to greater or lesser degrees, 
you know mm-hmm. that that it builds to the biggest moment in the book is is inevitably on the last page and then it and then goes into the next thing and as much as i liked it i was also very surprised by i think well there were there was there was a few slip ups like i definitely think that there's a um you know uh, the plutonian uh super nemesis modeus around whom a lot of the first third of the book um revolves around like trying to find him what can we do like you know he's the only one who could stop the plutonian and then there's a reversal there that you're like okay this is going to be really um interesting and then the payoff for that and there's probably more payoffs and i'm also trying to be somewhat vague for people who want to pick it up i suppose which never never goes well on this podcast but the the there's essentially a moment of the tables turning that i was impressed that after like 16 or 17 issues in like i'm like huh wade didn't lay enough groundwork to make it work you know like there's a lot going on in irredeemable that... if, if it's the if it's the reveal that i think it is mm-hmm. i think that's one of the reveals that relies too heavily on the source material right it, well you have to think that because otherwise it means it's weightless you know what yeah, I it mean? means nothing yeah. yeah yeah and i think that that's one of the things that's super problematic and it actually kind of gave me some weird thoughts about how do i put this you know I, I there's times where i spend a lot of time sort of wringing my hands and thinking about you know um the whole thesis uh antithesis and synthesis concepts of sort of creation you know mm-hmm. and and i really think that i really think that mark wade is an exceptionally good synthesizer like having finished tower of babel just a week before and seeing I guess the ways in which he made those Silver Age figures of the JLA, like, well, and it's post-Morrison, he he works them really, really well. Like, he he really knows how to, like, play with the ideas and who the characters are and give them throwaway bits that when added onto the full body of who they are... Um, you know, is really satisfying. And one of the things that's really weird about uh, Irredeemable is you have the Paradigm, who are these characters who Wade creates and he shuttles through, and toward the end, when there's a bunch of stuff going on with uh, Bette Noir and uh, Gilgamesh, or Gilgamesh, whatever they call him, I don't remember, I was like, huh, this is... Like, I'm like it's interesting enough that I can't write it off, but it doesn't, it doesn't have enough, it doesn't have enough pop on its own. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. so I kind of found myself like on the one hand, in terms of like considering where Wade started the story, which is like really does start it at that crisis point and gets things going. It's fantastic. And then as he fills in some of the backstory of who the paradigm are, how they hook up with Plutonian, how all those characters are, I had a sort of an appreciation for the some of the structure of it, but I was really left kind of cold um, about the weight of it on its own ideas. You know what I mean? Like it's. No, I, I I totally do. Um, the if it's unless I'm totally misremembering, and it's possible I've not read Irredeemable for a while. Mm-hmm. I feel that the reveal you're talking about um, 
with the Plutonian and um, Modeus has more payoff down the line. Right. I think it's it's one of those things that has the oh hey that's meant to be Superman and Lex Luthor slash Batman and the Joker mm-hmm. like moments in the moment. Mm-hmm. But I feel that it there is actual some actually some payoff within the irredeemable story later. I might be misremembering that. No, I I can see it because one of the things that I l- liked about Wade's piecing is is the way that he takes things and builds off of stuff. Like he, you know, he presents a character whose ability to summon, you know, heroes of history based on telling stories about them. And Wade comes up with a really neat way to take that power you know, and 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 push it to a new level about, you know, 15 or 16 issues in that feels like really organic and very cool in a way that I, I appreciate it. And so I feel like the structure in Irredeemable is is part of the enjoyment of it, watching how things crystallize and the way that Wade goes about turning the situations around and then turning that around again but I also had this sort of very strange feeling of um, uh, like kind of just still I I still felt that it was a a surprisingly shallow experience for a book that was you know that that was basically his from soup to nuts and he had the um, the ability to pace it any way he wanted now that that may not be true you know no, I know, but I was going to say it's one of those things uh, that I sometimes have with creator own work where I have the the reaction of you could go anywhere and you chose to go there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and... uh, which is which is also a very strange experience because you're like, I really liked your, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. your Batman story, your Superman story, your X Men, whatever, mm-hmm. and then for creator own work, you're doing that, which is all the parts that I thought were imposed on you from outside. Right, and not the things that I really liked. It's it's a it's a weird thing that mm-hmm. when you when you have that, huh? You're clearly not the creator I thought you were. Right, right, exactly. And I, I, I that sounds like weirdly um, entitled, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but it's not meant to. I, I think you. I think especially with with company owned comics, it's very easy to create an ideal of well, they're doing the best with what they're what they're given right exactly but yeah un- unfettered they mm-hmm. could do so much more right and then you see them unfettered and you're like well that's not what i thought they'd do at all right and you have the, you have a realization of they're they're not the they're not the person I, i'd imagine them to be right right yeah and i mean there's ways in which again it's that kind of that weird like you start building the box for them again like i can see lots of ways in which wade at that particular point with what he was doing with Boom was going to be very specifically kind of um, he was going to stick to his quote-unquote strengths and he was going to play the analog thing I think more more than he might have otherwise because it was the marketing hook of the whole thing and I think that he mm-hmm. you know he's not the sort of guy to sort of do a bait and switch I think but but by the same token it was kind of this odd like yeah, I mean, I would love to pick up the second set of the second digital omnibus at some point and and finish the whole thing. But I also have this strange feeling of um yeah, there's just there are interestingly enough, there are guys who 
play really well inside the you know color inside the lines really well i guess you know put them back in the playpen and they really can do and so i'm always fascinated by the degree in which some people in which you think of them like i wouldn't necessarily think of wade as an especially daredevil kind of guy you know and it ended up being perfect for him and i i could see lots of ways in which i think wade would be very quick to be like oh but hulk is totally in my wheelhouse um and it takes him you know close to 11 issues to get something that starts to feel like it's gelled you know yeah it it's yeah it's very it's very interesting because it does hulk seemed like a better fit ahead of time than mm-hmm. daredevil did just mm-hmm. in theory but whereas with daredevil it clicked from issue one right it really has taken him 11 issues to get hulk to click and you know that's my opinion for all i know there are hulk fans out there who are like no hulk was perfect from issue one right uh but it always felt up until this point like something was missing and that it just wasn't convincing enough and this issue was convincing in a way that the previous ones weren't right and and it is worth pointing out because i think this is another thing that in in the few weeks where we or 1500 years since we've not been um peace slinging here i feel like i've spent there's been a lot and i think it's a very sensible sort of idea put forward uh, through a lot of the comics blogosphere which is is that artists are being sort of severely underrepresented in these discussions and it's something which i am like abysmally guilty of um and it's worth it is if ever there's a book that's worth remembering it's like daredevil clicked instantly because you had some just absurdly top-notch art being oh yeah, well, and, and you have all the way through. And yeah, exactly. With, with maybe a couple of exceptions, mm-hmm. but for the most part, Daredevil's been an exceptionally well-illustrated book. Yeah. But here's the thing: Hulk has two. Mm-hmm. Hulk, you've had Linnell, you, Walt Simonson, and Matteo Scalera on there. Right. They're all great artists, mm-hmm. but only Scalera fits with the material. Right. Right. What's What's really interesting to me is how much Simonson did not. That is fascinating. Simon, Simonson and Wade thing is this weird. Simonson was too big for the material. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what Wade is doing in Hulk is he's trying to be he's trying to be very uh, tricky in terms of how big he goes. Yes. Uh, the the Banner stuff is very clearly controlled because he's Bruce Banner, and the Hulk stuff is very clearly not because he's the Hulk, mm-hmm. but. Simonson doesn't really do quiet. Right. And so you have Simonson doing, you know, here's Bruce Banner talking to his lab assistants. Mm-hmm. And it's all just too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, you're just like, no, this is this just does not work. This the, there, there's too much um there's too much to see here. There's too much all here. There's too much on the page. This should be a quiet conversation. This should be a quiet page. This person tripping should be relatively quiet and subtle. <laughs> but it's all happening so melodramatically. Right. I can just and see so that Simonson trip, actually, in my head. Yeah, and, and it's so visually spectacular that you're like, oh my god, you know, that person's falling and it's the most dramatic thing I've seen in the world. Um, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Work. He doesn't, and, and he doesn't I, do static pages, really. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Which is to his credit. I mean, you know, later on the Hulk shows up and Thor shows up and you're like, well, this is what Simonson does. Right. Simonson does big fuck off monsters really well. Yeah. Um, 
but the same was uh, true with uh, Linnea Liu, I think, as well. That <laughs> because so much of uh, Indestructible Hulk does rely on the banner of it all. Yes, the Hulk is really kept in reserve until it's you know, well, here everything's gone to shit. It's time for the Hulk, which is. A, Again, in theory, a really smart way to do it mm-hmm. because Banner is the more interesting of the character. Right. Um, but you, he kept on being given artists who just could not work with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is Scalera is not a subtle artist either. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the way that he does it that he manages to emphasize... Uh, the, he managed to not even deaden his tone, but pull it back enough that there's a lot of interest in the page and there's a lot of interest in the acting, mm-hmm. but he somehow quietens it down so that you're not feeling frustrated. You're not feeling that, you know, something's being either not uh, passed on or, or not played out well, mm-hmm. uh, or that the artist is be feeling very frustrated and the artist is feeling very much like, well, I've only got 10 more pages of doing this and then he's going to turn to the Hulk and then I can just cut loose. Right. Right. You know, so so, so Scalera, it's Scalera is a, the best artist in the series by far, mm-hmm. but it's not that the other artists were bad. It's that I, there was there was just a tonal problem all the way through. That was part art, but also Wade's got to take some responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. No, 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 no. Agreed. I just think that it's also worth talking in that sense about the art because there is there is a way in which. There's degrees. Unfortunately, I don't have the iPad turned on and heated up, but I definitely know there was a stage at which Irredeemable's art changed for the better, as far as I was concerned. Oh, actually, I think it was. Um, is, is it the, is it the is it when Peter Krause stopped drawing? Yeah, I think when Krause stops, and then they've got Barreto and someone else, or maybe it's mainly it is it's it's Eduardo Barreto, right? Uh, no, so not Diego. Is it not his it son? is. It's Diego. Diego. I yeah. think it is Diego. Um, and and it and it picks up to me as far as I'm concerned. I suddenly started being like keyed into things, and there there was stuff that I enjoyed a lot more. And then when Krause comes back, I was kind of like, oh, these are okay. And then I sort of liked it, but the first couple of for six or seven issues, sort of in a way, almost felt like they were a visual slog you know for mm-hmm. for whatever reason and didn't quite it's it's amazing when stuff clicks and when it doesn't at an art level you know um, oh yeah cuz it it makes such a difference to the experience oh, are you i i go to ask this question and i think i know the answer are you reading wade's green hornet <laughs> i am not um the reason i'm asking is it's had an artist change in its fourth issue mm. uh so it's been wade all the way through it's on issue 4 now and it was Daniel Indiro who was drawing the first three issues, and now it is someone called Helix uh, Rawlinson Freyer is drawing the fourth issue. What's really interesting to me is Rawlinson Freyer's art is not dramatically different from Indiro's, mm-hmm. but there's enough of a shift mm-hmm. that it feels more organic and less staged, mm-hmm. and I think it makes the book better as a result. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And which is weird because I think if you'd actually pinned me down front and showed me pages of the two without any, you know, outside of the context of the book, just like static pages, mm-hmm. I think I would have said that I thought in- Indra was the better artist. Mm-hmm. But but Ronson Freer somehow makes the book work, makes the book more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Wade's writing has not changed. 
Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's not like he's changed anything for his artist, but the book felt different purely because of what well, is a really subtle art change. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing how much, how, how, how little it takes in a way. How little it takes. In fact, I'm trying to think what book it was that I was looking at where I was like, oh man, the person who's doing the art, like the coloring. It was, again, it was one of those situations where it's like, oh, the colorist is doing so much exceptional work here you know and i, I can't oh. remember where it was and i was like oh god people lock down this colorist and I'm is, it, is it the wake uh no i'm actually Cause, behind cause on the wake mm-hmm. matt hollingsworth on the wake is doing amazing work yeah. amazing work his mm-hmm. color work in that series is just fucking stunning mm. you know i believe believe it i think what i'm going to say is let me flip through a few pages and make sure it's the case I don't know. Now I'm like, I'm not nearly as impressed with this as I thought. Maybe it's the backup. <laughs> well, I was thinking, because I, I picked up the Batman annual uh, in, in a oh, weird, yeah. like, I don't have much of a choice kind of way. Um, and there was there was some really lovely stuff ending up happening um, where I felt the colorist in particular lent the the art a lot of unity to the to the piece you know i really felt that that part of the progression through the story as i was reading it had a lot to do with the a lot of the color choices that were going on um which makes sense because there's something like i don't know six inkers there's, there's on like, this yeah there's an amazing number of inkers in that issue yeah uh, and it's all the same penciler which is kind of weird let's see how many inkers are there one two three four five six you're yeah. right yeah six six of them so i remember thinking like oh right like that felt it 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 was it was a piece where the the colorist really helped provide a kind of a much stronger ground work you know keep keeping the piece grounded than than i think would have been the case obviously something like 20 years ago you know i think mm-hmm. i think colorists continue when i when i pick up comics both print and digitally like they're they're kind of the mvps and i it's it's a it's a stunner when that's you know in a way i feel like it's still not as widely recognized as it should be mm-hmm. you know so um yeah did, did you pick up collider oh collider i I picked it up and flipped through it, and you know, I felt bad for putting it back because I'm like, oh, hey, it's a Vertigo book, and it's trying to be Vertigo-y. How was it? It seemed kind of dumb. Uh, it's it's kind of dumb, but I was going to say again, it's it's a it's a book that you buy for the art and mm. and the colors as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a fine first issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a runaway success. The problem is that the most amazing thing about it is the cover. Because mm-hmm. the cover is just stunningly good. The gunner covers a blinder, mm-hmm. um, and the logo is lovely as well. So you kind of look at it and you're like, "This is going to be the greatest book." And then you read it and you're like, "That was definitely a book." <laughs> um, it's it's yeah, it's it's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it but it visually it's spectacular. That's mm, nice. Who's who's and who's the art slash coloring team on that then? Robbie Rodriguez mm-hmm. is the artist. And uh, the colors come from Rico Renzi. Hmm. Okay. Well, I will pick it up. And, I... and in, in particular, it's when uh, the central character goes into the pit, for want of a better way of calling it. I don't think they actually have a name for it. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a an effect, a color effect that happens mm-hmm. uh, when things are going weird with gravity. 
that is just wrong enough, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. to be particularly stunning on the page. Mm, that's nice. I do remember flipping through it and sort of liking the look of it, and it came really close. But, you know, I think, is it is it also an under, underwater book? Is that, is, why am I thinking that? It's not, is it? Collider? No. No, I'm thinking. No, of but the... there, but there is there is a point where he goes in the the water and oh, he goes in like the gravity area mm. where everything's wrong, and it, I could see that if you. Yeah, I might have picked it up in the wake right after because I picked up the first few issues of the wake, and they're still sitting on my desk unread, and I'm kind of like I just I I'm really kind of I don't think I'm much of a, a underwater comics person. Weirdly. Well, I, I, that's very strange that you say that because uh, I've been getting the wake in comps, mm. which really surprised me. Like, I, we're on issue three and I'm still getting it in comps, which is really unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means I've read all the issues. Mm-hmm. And what's really strange is every time I read it, I'm like, this is a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not really engaged in the story in at any level. Right. But this is a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it is one of those things where I could totally imagine buying it mm-hmm. and then just letting it sit for a really long time and then discovering it months later and be like, oh, that's right, I paid money for this. I should probably read it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because sometimes right. you do that. Sometimes you buy things and you feel no like grades. I should buy this right. I should read this right now. Right. And then things happen. Right. Uh, it's it's not a comic, but uh, for example, I got uh, at the library the the center holds the the book about the uh, twenty twelve election. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really good book but it starts really slowly and so I made it like three chapters in and I genuinely forgot about it and last <laughs> weekend post Comic Con I was like oh I should this, I've probably got to return this and I've had this for weeks right but you know what I mean like it's things that you're not really excited about and you're, you just forget to read mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. totally well I actually interestingly enough I grabbed the first volume of Saucer Country out of the library because I remember how much you liked it it was right there and I'm like oh mm-hmm. I should grab this and and I actually read it today after making like, and I read the first issue. Maybe I even read the second issue. So I had you're like, I I read it like ten times, but I couldn't make it past issue three. Yeah, it took a long time, man. Let me tell you, that was one that by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, oh, that book was paced poorly. Like, I really, honestly, there's a lot of stuff that's going on there, but I, honestly, by the end, by the time I got to the end of the first volume, which is like the first six issues, I'm like. This one, it needed a good, strong editor on there. And and it's also one of those things where, I mean, it in a way, it's too late. But it's like, by the time you get to the end of issue three, I think it is, or issue four or something, like, there's a point where I'm like, oh, okay, this is where they, sh- this, is, this is what should have been issue one. Like, even something just as simple as having the the scientist who's talking to the Voyager 10 couple, which is... Like, one of the few sort of lively things, I think, in the first issue, so I can see why it's jammed in there, actually works would have worked better as an after-the-fact reveal, as a before-the-fact reveal, and there's a variety of stuff. It's like Ryan Kelly, I'm like, yeah, Ryan Kelly's art's okay, and then in that, that last issue, which is sort of the the brief history, you know, an illustrated history of Flying Saucers, which I think is done by... Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Braxton, yeah, 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 was great, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Wait, exactly. It's like a really weird, different book, isn't it? Yeah, You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, separate and apart from the idea of like, I would have put that as issue two, not issue six, you know, and I probably would have jammed 
issue three into issue one, like a variety of things. I just would have staged it all a lot differently. I found myself really going like, you, you know, it really did take a long time to, to push me past those first couple of issues, you know? What's really interesting is uh, having made it to the end of the series, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't, I know if he'd known where the story was going all along, mm-hmm. Part of me would have said start like issue one is actually issue fifteen, right? Where right. he leaves the series at issue fourteen, mm-hmm. uh, theoretically the cancellation point, mm-hmm. uh, that could have been the first issue, right? Because it's so much more dynamic, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, it, there's so much more to it. I think part of the problem, and I I still like the series, but I think part of the problem is that potentially like me, which might be why I like the series. He's a bit too much of a wonk uh, for American politics while not really understanding American politics. <laughs> you know, Do you know what I mean? Like, the, I feel like I feel like it's definitely someone who saw The West Wing a lot. Well, yeah, I think I thought, that's my problem. I, I want to do that. Right, right. Without necessarily having, like, even an Aaron Sorkin understanding of... <laughs> Of politics. I don't... I You know, it's funny, because I think there's something that's a little... Uh, that's, that is part of it. I think part of the problem is the... Um, he's pacing it like a TV show. He's not pacing it like a comic book. And I think that is the other thing that's very problematic. Like, there's, there's a lot of weird leaps in the first issue that sort of, I think, might make more sense... Um, as a television series, weirdly, and also the the slowness with which the characters gather and the picture that you gather of them, um, you know, it's supposed to be, it seems like a very televisually sense of reveals, you know, but instead it's, it's, it's really caught between two very different pacings. It's trying to pace itself like a comic series that throws in the visuals, but is trying to do a very televisiony sense of the characters, and it just mucks up. Like it, it really has that weird push me pull you kind of thing going on um, as far as its pacing goes. Uh, so it was, it was great reading it, but I definitely had that weird feeling of like, well, I definitely made a good choice in not reading it and, and wait, waiting until the library could do, pay for it instead of me yeah yeah also yeah. you know it's crazy that we've been talking for an hour and we still haven't talked about batman incorporated 13 because i'm like <laughs> i mean there's a whole bunch of other I stuff i want to blab about purposely but leaving it so we could like do the other stuff really quickly because i have the feeling we're going to spend a lot of time talking about batman incorporated 13 right okay so let's let's run through our other books very quickly and we can talk talk about them and things we liked or did not and then you know sort of plow right through so okay uh so we just do like super fast yeah i think so and then and then we can Uh, we can cross interrogate one another if there's a sticking point i guess okay second issue of lazarus uh yeah yes i did and i liked it a lot here's my weird question about lazarus Mm -hmm. does the lettering bug you as much as it bugs me uh, I find it hard to read because of the lettering. Interesting. I I don't love the lettering. I'll be honest. Some of the lettering is not well chosen. Um I I think Lark for whatever reason Lark is picking something that I think oh no, he thinks works for him and it it kind of doesn't. 
That being no, said, you know, there are some, there's a few things that, uh, like the first two pages of Lazarus 2, um, you know, there's kind of a pull, full page uh, scene where Eve is being screened by Beth and she's standing there in her towel and it's surrounded by a lot of inset panels that are, um, you know, showing things about her. It's basically the view screen that, that Beth is seeing, you assume, of Eve. Yeah, and yeah. It, I was like, well, shit, there's a wasted page. And and it's interesting to me because I'm like, the art looks great and the dialogue is minimal and terse enough. But at the same time, I'm like, hmm. But the but the rest of the book hauls along. Oh, you know what it is? Also, the, the color, Santiago Cas's colors in Lazarus are are I think freaking phenomenal too I think but but honestly I found myself just I really like the issue a lot because I think the whole um, it's kind of everything that I sort of want in a dystopian science fiction thing and also reading that first issue and being like kind of like oh you know there's a really cool way they could kind of Game of Thrones this this uh, book and in the second issue, I'm like, oh, yeah, they are kind of doing that more. And that's really what I wanted. And so I'm enjoying it more, you know. So I like where it's at. I think the art looks great. And I think that Rucka, for the most part, like I still have various like, but I, I like this second issue a lot better than the first. I feel like it moves more, you know. Okay, I I I am pretty much going to agree with you with all of that. Okay, just just to keep us moving. Uh, Satellite <laughs> Sam, did we talk about Satellite Sam. We did not talk about Satellite Sam. Did you read Satellite Sam? I read Satellite Sam yesterday. Um, what did you think? Uh, I read. So I've read two issues. Oh, I see. Uh, I've, I've only I, read I, the first I've got, issue. I've got the I've got the PDF of next week's second issue. Um, Matt Fraction loves being the best Howard Jacob cover band possible, right? It's just me. Like, it's weirdly Jacob-esque mm-hmm. in writing as well as, like, obviously Jacob's drawing. Right. But I feel like Fraction is trying to be Jacob with this comic. Yeah, I think so too. And and honestly, the the first issue of Satellite Sam, for me, and I'm not paying much, you know, I've paid very little attention to what Chaikin's done apart from Black Kiss 2, ironically enough. It seemed like the tightest thing that Chaikin had done in some time. Like, art wise, you mean? Yeah, the art yeah, just no, felt I agree. so on it, the pacing of it. And also, kind of, I feel that Chaikin's got this weird amount of detail problem like if he goes too far it turns into noise for me and if he cuts it too low the pages feel really flaccid and underdeveloped you know um and i don't think a lot of people have this problem i've never just chickens just is never been an easy fit with me for whatever reasons but looking through it i was like god damn it looks great it it moves along well i just didn't like it <laughs> I just I was yeah, like I, 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 yeah. that, that's pretty much where I was with it as well mm. um, I, I I had one of those this is great if you like that sort of thing right responses mm-hmm. like if this is what you're looking for you'll love it right. right it's not what I'm looking for and it kind of leaves me cold mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
but yeah, I, I I feel that somewhere there is like a Howard Jacob fan who loves his eighties stuff, mm-hmm. who is you know having orgasms over this book. Yeah, yeah, because it really is like the strongest material. Strongest it's it's, looking it's material. the strongest. Yeah, it's the strongest mm-hmm. shaken art in mm-hmm. decades. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think Fraction, you're right. I don't. I think he tailors himself so well to the to what Chaikin wants and 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 does keep it moving i just found it very i don't know it 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 just struck you know part of it is is that maybe not being a a Chaikin fan it lands far afield i also feel that it has a little bit too much of the aaron sorkin influence in a way that i felt felt flat to me you know. What what was interesting to me was discovering that it's apparently now an ongoing series, which seems like such a mistake to me. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like if any comic should not be an ongoing series, it's Satellite Sam. Yeah. Because as soon as you get away from the central plot, there mm-hmm. is nothing anchoring this book other than the fetishization of the period. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, like it's it's that that just struck me as such a terrible uh, plan. Uh, I'm, okay, so I'm working through what I've read digitally. Um, sex. I read Joe Casey's Sex. Oh, God. I'm so sorry, Greg. Yeah, yeah I, I think we could actually leave it at that, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I was... Um, like, previous issues or the most recent issue? The most recent one. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, uh, I, it was literally... Uh, I was in the image FTP downloading things to review. Mm-hmm. I, I saw Sex there. I was like, hey, I wonder what this is like. And, again, if you were a Joe Casey fan, it's probably great. Yeah, I guess. As someone who's not a Joe Casey fan, yeah. I see you're so dismissive. No, but you know what I mean. Like there, are, there are comics where you're just like, this is just not my taste. Mm-hmm. But I can understand that if it's of your taste, you're probably loving it. Right, right. And no. that, 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 just like Satellite Sam, I had the exact same response for sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough for me because I feel like Casey's one of those dudes who is, I guess, for me, kind of like. <sighs> the poor man's Brian Azzarello in the sense that most of his he's got I think just impeccable taste with artists but he himself and his approach to things leaves me very very cold so I I just end up like sex I actually gave like two or three issues for and I just I was like no I'm sorry this is this is just badly paced I I, and this is my problem I, I definitely think there's maybe there's other stuff going on that people see in Casey's work that makes up for what seems to me like an an utter slog fest. So well, I I've enjoyed a lot of Casey's work in the past, but uh, Sex and Bounce, I I don't get at all. Mm-hmm. I, I I I mean it's it's not even like I dislike them. I just don't get them. Mm-hmm. I I don't understand. I don't see the appeal or the unappeal. I am I am left almost entirely cold to the point where it's weird for me. Yeah, it actually feels to me sex is the closest that I've co- it feels like it will be the closest that I've I will ever come to reading a before watchman book, you know? It really reads like he was like, "Well, I they didn't go for my before watchman pitch, but I can totally retool my Night Owl's sexy adventures book into something even more boring than JMS's Night Owl's sexy adventure book." So, First of all, nothing could be more boring. Number <laughs> six, adventure book. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I hadn't actually made the the Watchmen or, or Night Owl connection. Maybe mm-hmm. I, you're almost making me want to reread it just to see that. 
<laughs> oh god damn you um what else have we had uh the new amelia cole which is great mm-hmm. uh oh god i've completely forgotten the name of it i'm gonna have to open up comicsology again now um is it every fat bottom ren fair detective i think that is it yeah 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 i didn't realize that officially came out officially came out i really should have picked that up oh yeah it came out like uh, during comic-con oh okay okay uh um good yeah, it, it it was yeah. I I really really liked it. I really 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 liked it, and I liked it in a weird way because it's it's surprisingly charming. I guess mm-hmm. I I don't know how to put it. There's there's this weird charm and sincerity to it. Mm-hmm. And somewhere like Jen Vaughn is like, I'm not being sincere at all. But I don't know. There's something about it that I was really really just charmed by. I kind of fell in love with the comic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I was, I, and it was not, uh, it's not what I expect from a monkey brain book, for want of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, it's black and white, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it seems more fa- or uh, alternative than I expect from, from a monkey brain book. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I loved it. I really did. Hmm. Excellent. I highly recommend it. That is one that I will look, I will look into. It's it's a remarkably charming book. I I really really was charmed by it. I, mm-hmm. I'm I I'm not a Renfair guy at all. Mm-hmm. I I you know I'm I'm very I'm very I'm so not a Renfair guy that I'm like huh Renfair okay then. <laughs> um, but no, I I really totally was like yeah I, I I love I love the affection it had for its characters I guess, mm-hmm. and I love the 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 world it builds really easily mm. like mm. There, there's in jokes and everything implied that you believe in it that doesn't feel like expeditionary or like at no point someone say how long have we known each other or anything like that <laughs> but you you get the feeling that these characters have known each other for a long time and that, that all these things have happened and it's 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 just it's really good i really liked it interesting interesting have you picked up... to... yo yes i was gonna say i'm gonna minimize this again to... so yeah listeners Jeff and I just cut off, and so we both put the visual thing on now, and now we're talking by looking at each other, and it's completely freaking me out. Yes, yeah. I'm talking, and Jeff's just nodding. He's like, "Yes," and it's 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 no stopping now. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Well, hopefully that will be all we needed to sort of reboot our our, our um, recording connection or something. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, uh, I I I can't even think what else I've read. Jeff, you tell me what you've read. Okay. Well, let me let me run down the list very quickly. Oh, okay. Did you did you pick up or read the Hawkeye Annual? Uh, you know what? I haven't. Like, I've actually picked it up because Chad Nevitt gave me his code, and I still haven't read it. Oh, that's really funny because someone passed along the code to me, so I was like, oh, okay, I will check this out, and uh, it was interesting because it was kind of. Uh, problematic issue for me because it's got lovely art by uh, Javier Polito but it also has lovely non-art by Javier Polito you know Um, I think perhaps possibly germane to this discussion is uh, uh, did you read um, Jog's latest article over at the Comics Journal where he talks about Basically, the history oh, Jay Lee? of Jay Lee and what he's yes, doing on yes. Superman, Batman Two. Yes, yes. Uh, incredibly interesting. I totally recommend people pop over to the Comics Journal and look it up. It's under Joe McCulloch. He does the comics of the. It's not called Comics of the Week. I think it's like this week in comics, maybe. And it's for this week. 
or was it last week? I want to say it was last week. It I think by the time this week. is released, it will be two weeks. Two ago. weeks ago, so It'll you may have to dig around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is a weekly column, uh, and he talks about the both. Interestingly enough, the 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 uh, evolution of Lee's art and how what we think of as stuff that might have evolved from Lee's work uh, may not actually like is is actually there in place back when he's doing super super early work for like. Namer the Submariner, you know, being written yeah. by John Byrne and stuff. So, um, it's so interesting. This Hawkeye annual is opening and then will not let me turn any of the pages. So I'm just stuck on its cover image, like over it, and over like, and over. Stop bitching about me, Jeff. Yeah. I'm not going to do it any pages. <laughs> exactly. Why should I help you? Uh, so Polito has some, you know, the, 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 the book is visually peppy, as I think we're used to thinking of Hawkeye as being. And I should point out that although uh, Whatnot uh, Sarah sent me her first, like, seven issues, I want to say, they ended up being shifted around or shunted aside in a short box, and I haven't read them yet. But I have had read the first issue of Hawkeye as part of the Marvel Three five hundred or whatever, so I, I feel like I've got to and flip through the pizza dog issue. So I think I've got a good sense of, you know, what the tone of the book's supposed to be, and it very much nails that tone. It really does hit sort of that kind of, literally a sweet spot, I guess, in terms of its poppy visuals being, having a lot of energy to them, but not just being serving no purpose I guess you know like they they definitely not only do they serve the tone but they also um, mix up the complication of the way that the story is told in complex ways there's lots of great little inset very cartoony panels of Kate Bishop it's very much supposed to be Kate's story it starts with her and Hawkeye like splitting for uh, whatever reason and she takes off for Los Angeles and ends up falling under um uh, uh, falling right into the hands of Madame Mask, who she has apparently crossed in an earlier issue of Hawkeye. And uh, I think the hardest thing about it is the art is really great and very lovely um, in in a way that sort of reminded me of the Batman Year One, Mazzuchelli, like that same sort of like kind of flatness to the visuals and a real reliance on sort of a, a kind of a thinner line work I suppose um, except there's huge chunks where Polito goes and renders the characters in silhouette for reasons that utterly utterly escape me um, and it sort of reminded me of you know before Joe broke down you know uh, Jai Lee's art the way that Lee I remember one issue of Ultimate Fantastic Four where Lee tells the entire story like more or less in blackout and silhouette, you know, and it's just the, you know, at, it really served the story exceptionally poorly. And I kind of feel, unfortunately, that that ended up happening with Hawkeye Annual, that that Polito, to make a deadline, um, decided, and it's possible that they were like, well, no, because the story is about mistaken identities and people are not being who who you think they are. That rendering them in silhouette suggests that you don't you also don't know who they are. 
but it's just annoying and distracting. So I was really bummed that people took the time to give me the Hawkeye annual because it, it came with the digital code. I took the time to read it and what it ended up feeling like a little bit of a waste. And I was I was kind of bummed by because half of it was so damn charming. I was like, oh, why don't I read this? You know, I wish I could read this every issue. And then then the other portion of it was like, except this is really kind of inexcusable. <laughs> what well, What's really interesting to me about Hawkeye is Hawkeye for me is a book that literally lives or die dies or who is the artist. Right. Uh, when I I was drawing it, it's it's a must read mm-hmm. uh, because he what he puts into the issue, no matter what style he chooses, uh, it's always so intelligent mm-hmm. and has so much information in it mm-hmm. that that it's worth spending the time on. Right. Uh, Polito did two earlier fill-in issues mm-hmm. in the series, and I I am a big fan of Polito's other work. I think mm-hmm. when Polito mm-hmm. did a couple of issues of the Shade series, the the James Robinson Shade series a couple of years ago, it was spectacular. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I thought that Polito's Hawkeye fill-ins were so I was I was going to say like beneath as quality, but I don't think that's true. But they were so different. Mm-hmm. That it that it seemed like a much lesser series for me, mm-hmm. um, and I think the same is true of uh, Francesco Francavilla, who mm-hmm. is a spe- but just doesn't provide the same thing that I, I don't know, expect or want well, uh, from Hawkeye. Okay. So yeah. I, I think it really is. I, it's it's an amazingly uneven book mm-hmm. um, for that reason. Like, because it's funny earlier on we were talking about you know we don't give the artists enough credit. Hawkeye is an artist's book. Yes. Fraction is, uh, in terms of the appeal, mm-hmm. Fraction is way down there for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a fuck you, my Fraction sense at all, but in a, it's so stylish and it's so almost sold on its visuals and its aesthetic mm-hmm. that Fraction is such a, a solo down on, the, on the, the, the appeal table for me. Mm-hmm. That he's almost invisible. Mm. Interesting. You know, if I was not drawing it, I think twice about it. If I was drawing it, I would buy it. Yeah. I, and like fraction, fraction is not part of that equation. If I was drawing it and someone else was writing it, I'd still buy it. Sure. Well, I I definitely would feel. Unfortunately, you know, before the old Marvel boycott rolled along, I mean, uh, I can't even say his wor- say his last name correctly. Do you say Aja? Is that how you say it? I'm saying aha, but I could be wrong. No, I think like, aha, aha makes sense. Well, no, because I think if he's... I always assumed he was Spanish and that the J was somewhat silent or like an H, so it would be closer to aha, right? I don't know. Um, I always loved his work from, ironically enough, back on Iron Fist, when he, which he was doing with Fraction and Brubaker, um, and the stuff that I followed through him. God, I you know read him on Secret Avengers, for Christ's sakes, where, again, his art was amazing. Um... So I, to me, he's kind of at the top of the field there. And for myself, who can run coolish on Fraction, I do think that, frankly, Fraction has hit a very nice tone on the book. You know, I feel like the book has a lot of pep and wit to it in a way that um, it it's sort of, it to me, it's sort of what Bendis tries for in his books and doesn't always hit. You know, it it feels very witty, peppy, fast moving, and in which the characters get to speak in a stylized dialogue that nonetheless still feels 
like you can kind of squint it helps that the the way the book looks is so different helps you feel like it's it's a different tone to the characters rather than just you know a, a, a an audio tick on the part of on the part of the writer you know mm-hmm. so so actually i think that yeah you know hawk if i was reading marvel hawk i would be a book that i would be reading and i i think that i would give fraction a certain amount of credit for that it's just but i mean at that point you know ah uh, i uh, is <laughs> i is is just to me he's just an artist at, at like working near the top of his game so yeah i i, I don't mean to say that fraction's doing bad work i think what i'm trying to say is that his work is so uh so at the top of his game it's yes. so strong yeah that like fraction is almost invisible. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean like it's it's Aha and Hollingsworth and what like what they're doing? Yeah. The words are so. Uh, I mean, the words are fine, but they're fine. But I'm buying the book for the art, which I never do. Mm-hmm. I never do. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, exactly. I I tend not to do it as as well. I don't know. I want to say I tend not to do that, but the fact is, I feel like the last year or so, because I'm staring face face to face with Flash issue 22 and I'm just like yeah I would not I would not have made it this far if I wasn't buying that book you know the majority of which for the art so yeah. uh, let me say so I read Flash 22 I was meh-ish about it and I think I need to get off the Flash train because this actually was drawn by Manipole and I was just I'm just not really connected to the characters really I mean they're breaking out ideas and things with speed force suits and it looks like they're finally maneuvering the iris berry uh cute one with the glasses patty love triangle into place but i it's so little and so late i didn't care um batman the annual 2 i picked up and i thought was a pretty decent batman story with some really nice like i like the way that it's put together as a batman story um but you know, but I'm not necessarily sure looking back on it if it wasn't for the fact that Hibbs included it because I was a Batman subscriber. I think I, I might have mm. tried to make noises to get out of it more. Um, Optic Nerve number 13, which was depressing as hell, but great. Oh my God. And and, and if I, I should say, one of the things that impressed me about Optic Nerve is I'm so impressed with Adrian Tomine's ability to create something that is so entirely of the same tone like from the front page all the way back to the letters pages like the letters pages are both funny and like crazily depressing in the exactly the same way <laughs> that most of the stories in Optic Nerve 13 were it's great I, um, I read Optic Nerve as well oh did you yeah I, I Optic Nerve is something else I, I picked up at San Diego ah. um and what is really interesting to me is I I go hot and cold mm-hmm. on Tomine mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, in large part because uh, like Chris Ware I find him so dour to be insincerely dour I guess mm-hmm. like I feel like you have to actually work that hard to be that depressed mm-hmm. um, and what was really interesting was the f- cover the story on the cover of, of Optic Nerve 13 yes. pissed me off so much, yeah. so much that I stopped reading the rest of the comic. <laughs> I was like, that is so insufferably smug. Yeah. A joke. Like, so insufferably smug. Mm-hmm. 
that I, I, I refuse to read the rest of your comic. And then I eventually came back, and I loved the, the story inside. Yeah. Which is exceptionally dark. You're right. Yeah. Um, but the, the it's so funny to hear you go, like, it's so tonally one, because it's not for me. The cover is so, like, horrifically someone needs to smack you smug. And the story inside, I feel, is, has so much more humanity and kindness to it. Mm. I, I, I find them very different. That's interesting. Because I actually, how do I put it? I feel that Go Owls, which is the, the longest story in Optic Nerve 13... Yeah, sorry, that, that is the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Starts off as kind of almost a little upbeat in a way that I thought would be a real departure from Tomine. And then becomes darker and darker in a way that I find... And then has a crazily dark punchline. Oh, yeah. Yeah, such a Holy good dark shit, punchline. Holy shit, gut punch. Gut punch of a punchline. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which I just thought was kind of phenomenal. Like, I really was like, oh, this starts one place and then goes a different place. It reminded me a lot of earlier Adrian Tomine stuff, which, which had a lot of influence for me only seemed like a strong influence was like early darker more pessimistic Raymond Carver like it felt like a return to that Um, however it has that weird again I had that weird like um, it's almost impossible for me to not feel condescended to by Tomine and I felt that even in Go Owls I felt that there was something faint had that faint oh, veneer. Oh, no, oh, no, I, I, I can definitely see that. There, There's a, an element of, uh, you know, you plebeians. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is how the little folk live. There's there's always an element of that in Tomine's work for me. Yeah, yeah. The, it's, uh, there's but, a but, real you know, weird the co- class the cover, basis. But the cover is stunningly, staggeringly <laughs> that. Uh, and the, the, the Go Owls is, you know, that's a small element in it. I found the Goels was much more sympathetic, whereas the cover is literally just you people. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But then you read the letters page and you're like, holy fuck. Also, I thought translated from the Japanese was terrific. Like, I really thought that that was an incredibly strong piece as well. So I, I thought Optic Nerve overall was, yeah, apart from that cover page story which I think was easily the worst part of things uh, and I can see where you you don't see it totally lined up I for me I see it kind of that way but I, I'm not I, we don't need to quibble about it um, surprisingly <laughs> are you sure Jeff? because it sounds like we're quibbling it sounds like we're quibbling well we, we're not going to spend more time quibbling is what I'm going to say is I definitely think that it, it was actually a really strong issue I feel like from what I remember of 12, I feel like Tomine's actually kind of getting his groove back in a lot of ways. Because I was someone who liked his earlier stuff and thought he went through an almost insufferable period for about 10 years there, um, if not longer. Um, So, you know, surprisingly good issue. Very, very mordant. Um, And and yeah, Go Owls was pretty impressive. I'm sure a lot of people talk about this in exactly the same breath, but Judge Dread Year One Issue Four. Uh, it, it's they always say Optic Nerve Dread Year One. Yeah, that, very that's much what so. The kids say. Yeah, yeah they yeah, really do. How yeah. is that? I I was thinking about that uh, in in my 2000 AD haul. I was like, should I be picking up Dread Year One? Should I, Jeff? 
I would say that uh, uh, as long as you get Matt Smith doing the writing, yeah. What started off as being a kind of... Um, I guess what I like about it is is that Judge Dredd Year One sort of feels like an attempt to do... Like, kind of a... It's like a 2000 AD light, or a 2000 AD primer, I suppose. Which Well, well you know who Matt Smith is. Yes, right? exactly. He's the current editor of 2000 AD. Yeah. Which is... He's which, dark. Yes. <laughs> I, you, I, you know, Graham, I'm afraid I have to give you half points off for not whispering that. So, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Borak Thunja. <laughs> Okay, I'll you can make up the points. So anyway, um so first I was kind of you know, the first issue or two it was very much kinda of like I'm on the super dread kick. Uh and I have a lot of faith in Smith and I think by the time you get to the end of it, um I enjoy, I really did enjoy it. I kind of enjoyed the idea of like, oh hey, here's here's sort of a um by the time you get to the end of it, it's like Smith packs in like four or five really weird, crazy ideas. Hold on a second. We might have to wait for the sirens to pass. Or just cut out. Um, in a way that is like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like not 2000 AD, but it kind of is. Like I had a lot of faith in Smith to, to follow this along. I miss a lot of the, I guess, sort of the 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 weird... I don't want to just say it's visual flair. Like, weirdly, the more 2000 AD that I re- read, and it also helps with with magazine, um, the best stuff has an almost visual wit to it, I guess. You know what I mean? And and so... Well, that's interesting, because Colby's a 2000 AD artist. Yeah, he, he is, and I can even see where it may be that... Because, honestly, it's not like the art looks... Um, tonally different from what you would see in a in a in a dread in a dread arc that would last you know maybe a third this length you know what I mean like it would it would run five six you know progs and therefore be done in like you know thirty pages and be over and mm-hmm. and spread out over four issues it's fine but I think that's part of the thing is like when you read a bunch of Judge Dread all at once or you know, even if you read 2000 AD from issue to issue, I guess maybe part of the charm is the kaleidoscopic nature of it. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't like what you're looking at, like four pages later, there's going to be something different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And what you're going to see has so much variety in and of itself. So it's like when you read 2000 AD, you get a lot of variety in one issue. And then when you read a run of Judge Dredd, you get you get a lot of visual variety, you know, from arc to arc. Um, so, so really four issues in a row feels, feels oddly kind of oppressive, I think, for something that, again, is a little more kaleidoscopic. All that said, I ended up really enjoying where it ended up, and I enjoyed my run through the issues. And, and I'm starting to have enough of an appreciation for Dread as... Uh, character is probably too wrong the word. Uh, and in fact, that was always kind of my question about what's the point of Judge Dread Year One if you're going to make him, you know, you kind of can't make him different 
but there's no point in making him dread. And I feel like there's a really good, strong angle in year one in that the idea is, is that dread is still who he is. The difference is the way people react to that because of where he, where he is in his career, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's actually, it becomes a lot funnier for me in year one where you have him being the voice of authority and telling other judges what to do and what to expect. And they're like, why should we even listen to you? You are a rookie, you know, and, and it kind of works, you know, and it, it, I, I ended up enjoying it. Uh, five ghosts, uh, issue five of five. Uh, I didn't enjoy it as much as the first four issues. And it kind of was like, it, it helped that the first four issues had a lot of early Simonson to cop from and by the time you got to this issue, it if this had been a dollar ninety nine or I guess even two ninety nine, I think it's I think it's three ninety nine a pop and there's actually a good number of pages to it, so I in a way I shouldn't oh no, it's two ninety nine. For two ninety nine it's kind of it's an okay comic, you know, because it's goofy, the idea is fun and the art is I, I like the art. But especially by the time they got to fifth issue, it was really really if the art hadn't been so specific it really would have read like the fifth issue of about 70 percent of image comics is fifth issues you know what i mean like it was kind of like wow well that certainly wraps up that movie pitch and now you know what i mean and kind of it really just had that thing of like i was reading the last two pages and i felt like i could tell like I could all but hear sci-fi telling me what rerun was on next after it. You know what I mean? Like it really was kind of, it, it, it ended with a little less uh, originality than it seemed to start with, I guess. But it didn't end, right? Because it's an ongoing series now. Well, yeah, there's actually a break. It comes back in October, I think. So it, I think what happened was the success of the miniseries means that they're moving forward with it, but there's a lag, unless I'm misunderstanding. But I think the last page is like, coming in October, five ghosts, you know. And we'll see. I think I'll probably still be in on that on that ride. But, but by the same token, I didn't love it. Um... And with that said, I will skip over the Devil Dinosaur issue of uh, spec, you know, Avenging Spider-Man that I read and the two issues of Red Team. And let's just cut straight to the... Let's finally cut to the chase. Batman Incorporated, issue 13, man. Let's talk about that. Let's rap about it. Let's rap about it. Jeff, lay down a beat. <laughs> oh my god, you actually tried. That's terrible as that was. <laughs> Okay, so here's my question about Batman 13. Mm -hmm. Batman Incorporated 13. Is it just me or is this an anti-love letter to Batman? Is this not a fuck you to Batman? Well... Is it it just me? No, 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 no. I don't think it's... um, Well, okay, so here's my thing. I think this is something we talked about months ago. The idea that, that... this, I kind of was like, oh, this will be interesting. I figured that, you know, I was like, oh, me and Graham totally pegged this one. That it was going to end... The to me it was a better X Men ending than than you know a better ending of that type than Morrison's fuck you at the end of New X Men you know um, it really struck me it's not a fuck you to Batman it but it did strike me as a fuck you to a 
Well, I don't know. Actually, it's a good question. Is it or isn't it? Because okay. I... the reason I think it's a fuck mm-hmm. you to Batman is Batman does nothing in this comic. Mm-hmm. Batman basically gets his ass kicked. Other people make fun of him. Other people come in and save the day, and he is shown to be entirely ineffectual. And then it ends is Commissioner Gordon being like, "But he's never going to give up." And I really was like, "That's great. This guy is never going to give up getting the shit kicked out of him. His heart's in the right place, but really, he can't do anything." Well, so but here's my thing. I sort of feel that it. How do I put it? It makes sense. You know, because I kind of feel that, the, and there's two ways to look at it. One way is, to me, is, is that Morrison gets to the end of Batman and realizes that the nature of corporate comics is such that Batman will never be a complete, will never be complete, essentially. It will never be a complete character. That a lot of what Morrison talks about in year one, year two, all the way up to year five is the idea of, and this, I personally think that this was such a brilliant uh, um, insight by David Uzumeri over at his Comics Alliance uh, sort of roundup of Batman Incorporated 13, is the idea that the title Batman Incorporated is kind of a pun, you know, that it's not just that it's literally Batman Incorporated. That Batman, that Morrison is going to incorporate all the versions of Batman into one character and make make the statement about who that character is. And I feel like by the time he gets to the 13th issue of Batman Incorporated, he's like, you know what? I was wrong. Fuck it. Yeah, and either I'm wrong because of the nature of DC and corporate comics, which I think is a, is a very, there's a very strong case to be made for it because I feel that that last page, um, that the reference to sons of the Batman is of, is a reference to weirdly. It feels like to, to the comic industry to me, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. and I also feel that, uh, you know, or, or it's possible that, you know, that Morrison s- comes to this realization that that after after going through what I what I genuinely feel is a literal magical spell to um, exercise Batman, to separate Batman from the darkness in Batman, um, that the 13th issue of Batman is literally he is impossible to separate from his wound. You know what I mean? That that the hole in things that that is Dr. Hurt, um, which literally picks on to me is such a has such a much more metaphorical meaning now than I think that I caught on, you know. Um that you can never remove the hurt from Batman. You can never remember that because he is a character that is driven by grief I feel that Morrison ultimately chooses like he can't he can't he doesn't believe in that. He fundamentally does not believe that you can actually create something great from uh, essentially embracing grief and tragedy, you know. The the my parents are dead Batman. He goes to such great lengths to literally in the course of the intra narrative remove 
Batman's dark side from him. And then by the end of this 13th issue, his acknowledgement is, is that either A, Batman doesn't work like that, or it doesn't matter if you do it because Scott Snyder and all the other sons of Batman are going to be there to put it back in. That's, yeah, that latter thing you just said, what you just said right there about Scott Snyder, mm-hmm. I think is what I really took from it. Mm-hmm. I feel that uh, your, your eye casting of Batman, of Morrison's Batman as a spell, I mm-hmm. think is spot on. And I think that Morrison was clearly trying to heal Batman. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know it was, I, it was in the text. It wasn't just subtext. It was in the text. Yes. Um, and then midway through Incorporated, and I don't know if this was always the case or not, he went out of his way to basically reinfect Batman with the darkness. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he, he made Batman uh, healthier, for want of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I feel that the second half of this series of Batman Incorporated has been undoing all of that because he's realized that people would rather have Batman who isn't a superhero but who is this damaged person yeah. who runs on pain and can't form relationships mm-hmm. and it's it's very it was very demoralizing to be honest I think mm-hmm. it's a, a really weirdly demoralizing last issue yeah um, I, I it feels very much like uh, simultaneously going through the motions and Morrison apologizing for what he's done mm-hmm Mm. Um, thing, things like the Sons of Batman, the, the cliffhanger, mm-hmm. I left me cold. I, I honestly had a, why, why, why are you even bothering? Like that, that, I felt it was unnecessary, I guess. Mm-hmm. But but when you have, when you have Bruce Wayne talk about the, um, there are people whose hurt feelings can trigger wars. People whose broken hearts become grand opera on an international stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to find something I barely understood and I barely survived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that feel, seems to have deeper meaning. That seems to be Morrison yeah. talking. Yeah, I think and, so. And Morrison, Morrison describing interacting with. He's talked before about uh, characters being real in a sense that we are not. Yes. Because they they they're gone beyond us. I feel like it's Morrison interacting with Batman and realizing that he can't heal Batman mm-hmm. because someone will come along and undo it. Well, because people. People don't want healthy Batman. Very specifically, I think that's that's my feeling. Is very specifically the people who love Batman don't want that. You know what I mean? I think that's part of why Talia is ends up being the villain that she is here. Like, and and you know, is sort of dressed in the Doctor Hurt garb and then sheds it off. But the idea is is that is that that. That the people who love, like, there is no bigger Batman fanboy than Talia Al Ghul, and she finds it necessary to destroy him, you know. And in a way, like Morrison suggests that that has this this idea of, you know, whether that's from the idea of being spurned, but I think that that is the idea. Like James Gordon, very specifically, you know, there is that. There's always holes. There's always going to be a hole in things, because as soon as you heal Batman up, you're gonna you're gonna pull that heart right out. You know, and and it's interesting because I feel like Morrison had, you know, he he, he looks like he's the instigator when he has Damien get killed, and he very much looks like that where that's going but you know he's 
it's interesting that he, you know, so clearly had the reversals lined up there and well in advance, you know, and then very, very deliberately, I think, chose not to do it. I mean, it. I think it makes sense to him. I think, you know, even before he got to this point, I think the fact that his highest selling issue of Batman Incorporated is Robin's death issue and what it does for the sales in Batman, I think... I think only reinforced it. Now, my personal theory, I was thinking about this weirdly during a strange sleepless period last night, is I'm still convinced that the original ending, not quite the ending, that the that where Morrison's new X-Men ends up with Magneto is not actually where Morrison had intended to go. And that all of his weird stuff that he jams into the two future past issues afterwards where you've got John Sublime turning out to be the huge mega villain from behind everything like and with Quentin Crisp becoming or Quentin Choir becoming the new Phoenix like all of that was all stuff that he thought that I think he might have originally been going for and at a certain point went fuck it and so I kind of feel that I'm very strongly I'm very torn is to because one of the things that's interesting about Matman Incorporated is definitely the Orboros concept of the snake swallowing its own tail becomes so prominent in this issue and was introduced again I think in wasn't introduced in this volume of Batman Incorporated I want to say it was introduced in the very end of the last volume okay. I want to say the, the, the Leviathan Strike special Okay, was where it really gets started. And I kind of feel that that's the point where Morrison kind of goes, okay, you know, because clearly that level of recursiveness, and I do think that for me, the 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 Burnham just does so much amazing stuff here throughout. But I I love the double page spread of you know Batman and Talia face to face, and then the serpents eating their own tails on that page in this sort of recursive cycle just so great you know and and it really feels to me like again there's a to me a little bit of that idea of like yeah Morrison's like you can't escape it you literally can't escape Batman out of this cycle and and even though again Uzumari points out that there's a very cyclical nature in the way Morrison builds in the callbacks throughout the throughout his periods of of more of his run i also feel that maybe it was meant to serve a more mythic end and instead here serves a sort of more rueful commentary you know mm-hmm. so i don't necessarily it, it, think yeah anyway no on you go you don't necessarily think well oh i just i don't necessarily so i'm very torn as to whether he is at the end, he is basically saying, I've had it with Batman. Or if it's just like kind of this, Batman will never be anything larger than he is because the people who love him won't let him. You know? So That's sad as well. It is also sad. No, it absolutely is also sad. But at least I feel... For one thing, I felt like it was done better than than the end of New X Men, which I keep bringing up as a comparison to. But also, mm-hmm. I kind of had that weird like, you know. But it doesn't. He doesn't really feel that wrong either, you know. Um, yeah. So, you know. I don't know. I I I, I found I um, 
I found it weirdly upsetting is the wrong word, but it's also not the wrong word. Mm-hmm. I, I, I found it very... I guess I felt for Morrison reading it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It felt like someone who was very sad. Mm-hmm. Like saying an incomplete goodbye. Does that make sense? Oh, it's interesting. It feels very complete to me. It's just a very... It wasn't the goodbye that he had planned. You know. Okay. Yeah. That 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 might be that mm-hmm. might be a better way of putting it. Yeah. I don't know. It it, it feels very um, very melancholy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so too. Uh, so it's very interesting to me. I am in a way. There's part of me that's kind of amazed that he is. I mean, I know multiversity is coming along. I'm amazed that he's doing a Wonder Woman book. You know, because it really. This last issue of Batman Incorporated feels about as close to a kind of a well. Why would I work on corporate superheroes after this? Well, you're assuming that Wonder Woman hasn't been finished for a while. Uh, right. Well, he, he that is true. That is true. Um, it's quite possible that that's. I I know that that's the case with uh, multiverse or multiversity. Um, but I'll be I'll be very curious to see if that's. Anyway, for myself, I I was, yeah, I was saddened, but I was also very, I was impressed that it felt like an issue where I felt like Morrison was the most in control of his message um, than I would have expected, I guess, especially after sort of the lackluster issue before it. I was kind of like... Well, yeah, that's just it. It was very strange that this felt so um, coherent and purposeful. Mm-hmm. In a way that the last issue didn't. Yeah. The last issue felt incredibly like filler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. It it did to me as well. Um, you know. So I don't know. Uh, blah, blah, blah. More comments. The coloring on it's a pip, eh? Though that's another one where I thought the coloring <laughs> on the book was fabulous. Um, uh, yes. I I the, for some reason the Burnamar didn't work for me this issue. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I. I liked big chunks of it. Like, how do I put it? I liked his storytelling more than his art, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Uh, actually, when you mentioned the double page spread of the two facing off against each other, the page that immediately follows that, yes. the two of them uh, sword fighting, I love, if only because the slightly off-kilter panel allows you to have the reading Batman is cancelled. Yes! <laughs> Which is a, a nice little joke to have in the, the last issue of the series. Um, I think the problem I had with it is, uh, in a weird way, everyone looks too pretty. Mm, mm-hmm. Even Bruce Wayne, with all of like with his shiner and you know the ridiculous growth underneath his, his open eye and all that, like it all looks too pretty. Mm. Um, there, there's something weirdly unconvincing about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's 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 very strange. I well, I appreciate the fact that it's in a DC comic. If that makes sense, because if you look at the art, the idea that that's in a DC comic is kind of surprising. Oh yeah, oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, I I felt that way all the way through about Burnham. Burnham has. But I feel I feel he's trended more towards that. Mm-hmm. I think if you go back and look at like the first issue of the series, for example, it's more uh, mainstream or more. It's not even more mainstream. It's more like Frank Whiteley, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think by the time you get to this issue, like he's he's become himself so much mm-hmm. to the point where you're kind of like, huh, that, I'm genuinely surprised that DC are like, you know who should be drawing this really big Batman book? Mm-hmm. This. Right. 
<laughs> no, I agree. I agree. I think I think Burnham has really grown to into his own and in a way where he is such a strange talent. Like I think that's one of the things that's really more miraculous about Batman Incorporated, apart from the fact that it actually does make its way to the end and has real layers of heavy, heavy, heavy critique uh, against DC and, you know, and it, it, like it says, it does read like a, a critique against Batman by the time that you get to the end of it, you know. Um, but what, what's fascinating is that talking about that critique, put it in with the um, the Action Comics critique of DC as yes. well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's fascinating. Yeah. Morrison is working at his issues on the page, consciously or otherwise. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think very conscious, consciously. And I don't know if it's... If find it hard to believe that the editors don't get it, you know? So it real to me, is that fascinating level of like, okay, do they not get it? Or does it not really matter to them? Is it just sort of, it's not worth the hassle of trying to fight them on it, and it's coded enough that it's not that it doesn't seem like a definitive statement, you know what I mean? Like, it's really hard between action comics and this to not seem like Morrison is, like, is is cr- cr- criticizing DC fiercely, you know? Um, but at least I guess I feel like, again, there's... I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, but I'm, or is it just that people read it and they're like, huh, okay, well, hmm, that had a lot more, like, circular snake swallowing stuff than I would have thought but what the fuck it's Grant Morrison you know that whole like who knows what he's high on well to be fair Mm -hmm. I think there's probably an element of that going on yeah yeah it could well be it's just like well bitches gotta be crazy you know and uh, I I, I'm sort of surprised that 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 is that really says something way more cynical to me about DC uh, than than I than I'm sort of prepared to accept in my tiny brain so um yeah it was it was kind of a it was it was definitely a downer issue but i thought a remarkably strong comic and i can see your point about burnham too because i definitely think that it it had when you mentioned the prettiness i kind of flipped through it and i'm like yeah i kind of see there's something about burnham's art that never quite it it it's it's like 90 percent there for me you know there's something yeah, about no, the way I, that he I, draws I and stuff, you know? I totally agree. Yeah, so... But, um... Well, my goodness. So, we're right past the cusp that, that's, of... That's been... Yeah, it's been to the two-hour mark. Yes, exactly. It's going to end up being a little uh, shorter once we edit out some of the various dropped noises and things. But I think, I think overall... People, this is what you well, come so, for. Some... Someone is calling you because I just heard your. <laughs> Someone's actually calling Edie. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Kate. It's been like, can we get them off the fucking phone? <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, just do something now. Like, start a fire in the kitchen. Something, yes. Yeah. That's what usually happens. Oh, boy. So, uh, so listeners, we're back. In theory, we're back next week. Is that right, Graham? We're not going anywhere? As far as I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not planning on going anywhere. And, I, and I'm planning on being not sick. So I, I'm hoping that by next week we'll, we'll, be, we'll be well back on this new roll of new episodes. So 
And if not, please don't hate us, listeners. Don't hate us too much. I mean, a certain amount of hating is healthy, I feel, as I'm... It's my secret to midlife. As you, as you get older, you're yeah. like, hating, hating, hating keeps you young. <laughs> it does. It does. You know, it keeps the juices, like, going. Uh, you know. <laughs> oh, man. I'm with that, listeners. <laughs> with that life lesson for you all. Exactly. Oh, do you want to sing us out? Today? I was hoping you would sing us out, because it was sort of... Okay, then. Thank you. Next time I'll beatbox to it so that we can... uh... Oh my god, that'd be spectacular.